0: It's a tremendous blessing to be here today to have this privilege and opportunity to worship God. And it's a tremendous privilege and blessing to be able to, to open God's Word and, and study it together. That's not a trivial, casual thing. We talk about uh, the blessing of studying and the blessing of being able to present studies from God's Word. And hope we appreciate uh, how important this is and how wonderful it is that God's communicated uh, with us, that we have the, the same Word that spoke everything into existence and created everything that we're we're able to study that and read that and uh, it's a responsibility I don't take for granted I uh, hope that everything I uh, present is in accordance with God's word is true to God's word and is is not only uh, theoretical uh, but hopefully practical uh, and is helpful to you and excited to be able to continue a series uh, that we've been doing on the the book I've been doing on the book of first John with the overarching main theme of uh, our assurance as Christians. We've said that John kind of gives a thesis statement, thematic statement at the end of the book. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, "...these things I have written unto you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life." And so that's the theme we've been exploring. How do we know with confidence, with assurance, that we have eternal life, that we're going to heaven? And we've said that John uses a literary technique known as amplification, where he cycles around. We see this in the Gospel of John. We see this in the Epistles of John. The same themes, same keywords, over and over. And so, when you read his writings, and maybe when you hear my preaching in this series, you're going to think, he just said that. Uh, somewhat redundant, somewhat repetitive, there's some overlap that's by design. And so, we've uh, divided up this series into chunks, into sections cycling around what I believe are the themes that he amplifies the most, and that is the statements he makes about God. God is life, God is light, God is love. And so the evidence, the witness, the testimony that we belong to God, that we possess the eternal life associated with God, is that we have life, light, and love. And we've arrived at this last God is statement, God is love. And so our assurance... Uh, is critically important because I believe we serve God better with it. Without assurance, without boldness, without confidence, we get discouraged, we get despondent, we get depressed, we begin to lose our joy, and joyless Christianity is a great uh, disservice to Christ. When we walk around like Eeyore, that's the billboard of Satan. That's not attractive, that's not magnetic, that's not a good witness. That's not a good testimony. But... It's possible that you can have salvation without assurance. I think you can possibly think you have salvation and not have it. I think you can possibly think you don't have salvation and maybe have it. John's writing to people who maybe are dealing with doubt, who are discouraged, who maybe have some insecurity. How do we know that we're real Christians? And he's saying you are a real Christian, you do have eternal life, and here's how you can know that. And so it's possible you can have salvation and not believe it. <laughs> and not maybe know it with complete confidence, you can have times where that's the case. But I think it greatly impacts and affects how you enjoy and experience the Christian life. And To illustrate that, think about two men who are traveling to the same final destination, just like we are, in a sense, as Christians. One of the men, they're both traveling on the same flight by air. One of the men has never flown before, and so he is anxious, he is a nervous wreck, he has... He lacks confidence, he's very insecure about it. He doesn't believe that he's going to arrive at his destination. And so that journey is not enjoyable. He doesn't talk to anybody, he doesn't smile, he doesn't eat the free peanuts, he doesn't enjoy the trip. In contrast to the man who has flown hundreds of times, and through experience, through the testimony he's come to believe and know with confidence, with assurance, with, and faith that he will arrive at his destination, he will get where he's going. And he smiles, and he converses with others, and he watches the movies, and he eats the peanuts, and he he enjoys the trip. There's a great. They both arrive at the same destination. They both got there, but the process, the journey in getting there, was entirely different. And so that's what we're talking about. We can live the Christian life with assurance, with confidence, giving a good witness and testimony with joy, or we can do that with insecurity, and with lack of assurance, and it will profoundly affect the way we enjoy and experience the Christian life. And so to maintain fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people, as we've studied previously, we have to walk in the light, we have to keep His commandments, we have to confess our sins, and now we have to love God and love God's people and not love the world. That's what we want to talk about for a little while this morning. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. Skipping down to verse 19, we love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Finally, chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so the commandments, this is the commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Because all of the commandments are summarized in the command to love. God is love. God is so full. God is so omni that he overflows to us. He is so full, he gives. And those born of God are to be and do the same. We love God in part to a great degree by loving other people. Matthew 22, what are the greatest commands? Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. On this, all the law and the prophets depends, Jesus said. Romans 13, Paul wrote that the law is summarized and fulfilled in the command to love. It summarizes and fulfills all of God's teachings. Every one of the commands that were given tie in some way to these two commands. Love God, love others. And so not loving is a clear indication that you don't know God, John says in verse 8. Because knowing God results in loving people. That's the truth. If you could know God and not love people, verse 8 would not be true. And so agape love, the word in the Greek, uh, unique in the, in the New Testament, you see a word stay in the, agape love to appreciate it. Agape love is so uniquely Christian that where you find it, you find a real Christian. You find a true Christian. You find someone who's been born of God. It tests and it proves the claim of a new birth. John 13, verse 34 and 35, when we talk about, and we see John throughout the book saying, this is the commandment we've been given. This is the commandment we've been given by Christ to love. I think he has in mind uh, the greatest commands, Matthew 22, and I think he also has in mind what he records in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Somebody says, well, people who aren't Christians love. They love their kid, they love others, they love things to a certain degree. What's the difference? Christian love, agape love, can't be explained by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. can't be explained by sexual desires or natural affections or self-interest, but by the supernatural work of God. And there's a great difference. It proves to the world, and it proves to ourselves we're of God. We've been born of God. Verse 8. He who does not love, loveth in the King James. The word for love there is in the present active tense. We've talked about tenses a lot. Present active tense is like that continuous line. We talked about we don't want a present active tense sin. We don't want to practice sin. We don't want to walk in sin. That's somebody uninterrupted, unmitigated sin. But we do want an unmitigated, uninterrupted love. Present active tense. If we don't continue to love, we're not of God. We haven't been born of God. He said, you didn't know God. King James knoweth not God. And that's in the aorist tense. we talked about point tense versus the straight line. We point tense sin as Christians even because we're not perfect. So he says if you don't love, if you don't continue to love, you didn't even know God, ever. Any point, you don't know God. Love is an essential aspect of God's character that when you come to have a personal knowledge in relationship and experience with a God who is love and the Son of God who brought us and manifested that love, you naturally, you supernaturally become a loving person. That's the result. And this letter wants us to be so overwhelmed and so transformed by the love of God that it overflows into all aspects of our life and relationships and character. Those born of God love who God loves. That's the evidence, that's the proof. You love who God loves. 1 John 4 7 and 8 love is from God, God is love. True love, real love, pure love originates with God. He is the source. He defines it. And the new birth makes His love, true love, real love, who we are. It comes to distinguish and define us too. It originates in God. It radiates through us. God is the essence of true love, and only those who truly love have been born of God. John 17, 26, in this prayer, Jesus prays, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Chapter 4, verse 8, 1 John 4, verse 8, similar concept. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. To know God is to know and love the Son of God. John makes that clear throughout this book. You can't have the Father if you don't have the Son. And to know and love the Father is to know and love the Son. And if you know and love the Son, you'll love others. That's the connection. He goes on to say in verses 9 through 11, God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We can't say that we love and delight in the Son of God with the love of the Father if we don't live to carry out their mission. To bring life, light, and love, and the propitiation of sins to a lost and dying world. You don't love the Father, you don't love the Son, if you don't live to carry out that mission, to join them in that mission. And if anything we do is really love, is true love, is real love, it's an extension of God's love in us. His love in us becomes an extension of His love working in us and through us to others. And so He says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, if in the sense of there's an inference being made based on what He just said, we just read, God sent His Son into the world that we might live. God sent His Son so that we could have propitiation of our sins if or since, since God did that for us, we ought to love one another. If God loved us to the extent of sending and sacrificing His Son, we ought to extend love to each other. That's the point. And notice He didn't just love us, He so loved us. Important two-letter word here. He so loved us. The quantity and the quality, the manner, the extent of God's love. One who loves God must necessarily love those who are born of God, love their brethren. The word ought is a moral obligation, a moral imperative. Those born of God ought to love because He is love. We ought the way birds ought to fly. We ought the way fish ought to swim. Born-again people ought to love. It's who we are. It's who we become. Because we've been joined to a God who is love in the new birth. And he says in verse 12, No one has seen God at any time. Interesting statement. So we'll say, what about Moses and other places in the Bible where it, it seems to imply or say that God was seen. No one has physically, with the physical eye, seen the essence of the divine nature, the complete essence of the Godhead, because it can't be completely seen physically. God is spirit, God is omnipresent, and so you can't physically, with the physical eye, see the entire the, the essence of the Godhead. God is. Deity can only be seen and perceived through His manifestations, revelations, and through the incarnation that John emphasizes throughout this book. Going back to the Gospel of John, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has revealed, He has manifested Him. And so John says, if we love one another, here's the results of loving one another. God abides in us. And His love has been perfected in us, or His love is brought to maturity. We develop, we mature. If you want your children to develop and mature, to actualize, if you want to actualize and develop and grow and mature, love. You want to increase your maturity, you want to increase your growth and development, increase your love. We develop and we mature by loving more, by loving And John says, the test of whether you love God is whether you love your brother. 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You can't love God and hate others at the same time. Period. It's impossible. And the test of whether you love God is whether you love your brother, whether you love others. So verse 20 is in the negative. Then he goes on in verse 21 into chapter 5. Put it in the positive, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So John makes it clear, you can't love God if you don't love your brother. It's talk without walk. It's a lie. Our praise, our prayers, our life are lies. Because the way you treat the children of God is visible, visible, objective proof of whether you love God. And so he says, again, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What does that mean? I thought a lot about that. It seems to be saying that it's easier to love others than it is to love God. And I don't necessarily think that's the case or that's the sentiment or that's what's taught in the Scripture, but thinking about this, chewing on this, perhaps the thought is if you really love God, you're going to love who God loves. You're going to love what God loves. And the result is you're going to love your brother. And perhaps again, the sentiment, Matthew 25, when saw we hungry and thirsty and sick and in prison, when it, as much as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. There's a sense in which we love God and we serve God who is invisible physically by serving and loving those who are visible, those we can see those we can hug, those we can feed, those we can teach. We love God and serve God by loving and serving other people. And so the question, how can we love God if we don't love people? How can we express our love for God? How can we serve God and be the hands of Him without loving and serving other people? And so if we're born again, if we have the eternal life associated with God, we love who God loves and we love what God loves as a result of the new birth. We love what God loves. And I think... Loving what God loves is critical in loving who God loves, loving how God loves, loving why God loves. And I think if you want to increase your assurance and your confidence that you're born of God, that you belong to God, you need to increase your love of godly things. The more you increase your love for what God loves, the more convinced, the more confident you're going to be that you've been born of God, that you belong to God because you love what He loves. And loving what He loves would also imply and include not loving what He doesn't love, hating what He hates. 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. This is the only imperative, the only command in this text. Therefore, it's likely the main point. And everything that follows it is going to be argument, going to be incentive for why you should not love the world. And the first incentive... The first argument, the first reason for why you should not love the world or even the things in the world is because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You shouldn't love the world because you can't love God and the world at the same time. Love for God and the world can't coexist. That's why you shouldn't love the world and the things in the world. I'm I'm thinking of Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we see the word love and desire throughout this text over and over. And the point is, you're going to want something. You're going to desire something. You have affections. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily an evil thing. We create with C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote, it's not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. You're going to desire something. You're going to have a thirst and a hunger for something. The question is what? And the answer to that question is going to reveal who you are and whose you are. What do you love? Don't love the world. And the world that John's readers are being uh, forbidden uh, to love is not the material world or God's original creation. It's not the people who inhabit that world, it's not what John's saying. In fact, he's saying the opposite. You need to love those people. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Do we love the world or we don't love the world? Well, the world's being used in a different sense. And the sense in which the world that we're not to love is that the world that the Bible often talks about is, if you look at the Greek word here, it's cosmos, realm, the order, the sphere of opposition to God. It's the realm and the things within that realm that causes us to be opposed to God. Evil desire. Selfish desire. That's the world and the things in the world that we're not to love. And notice it includes not just generically, broadly, the world, but specifically even the things of the world. The things of the world that oppose God. And the world here defined by John in verse 16, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And we see those exact things in the original temptation... In the garden in Genesis 3, the first sin, we see those same things in the temptations of Christ because that's how Satan works to get you to love the world and the things in the world instead of loving God and the things of God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And life here refers to all the things that make life possible, that sustain life. The same word is found in 1 John 3, 17 where it talks about if anyone has this world's goods, world's goods is the same word for the pride of life. This world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart. How dwelleth the love of God in him? How does God's love abide in him? Same word in Mark 12, 44 about the widow who cast in two uh, mites, everything she had, all that she had to live on. Live on, same word. So it talks about the pride of life. It's not necessarily evil things. Kept in the right perspective with the right stewardship, but it's simply those things that we have to live on. This world's goods. Pride of life means things that you have, things that you possess. And so the first two lusts relate to things that we don't have. Physical and aesthetic pleasure. And then the third thing is things that we do have. Pride in what we have. The world is ruled by a passion for pleasure in pride and possessions. And anything in this world, John says, anything in this world that's not of God, that's not from God, can destroy your love of God. When we have a stronger desire, a stronger love, a stronger lust for these things instead of the things of God, and we have a stronger pride in getting those things and having those things than we do in belonging to God and glorying God, Love for the world and love for God cannot coexist. They're incompatible. They can't exist in the same heart and the same mind at the same time. Love for the world attacks and drives out love for God, and love for God attacks and drives out love for the world. And if you love what's not of God, no matter what you claim, no matter what you say, if we say, as John says over and over, no matter what you claim, you don't love God. If you don't love who God loves and you don't love what God loves, you don't love God, no matter what you claim. And so he makes another argument, another incentive, another reason for why we should not love the world. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. Same similar argument Peter makes in 2 Peter 3. Uh, seeing that all these things are going to be dissolved, are going to be burned up. What manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Matthew 6, don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupts, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's folly to cling to, to invest in, to give your heart to temporary things at the expense of eternal life. That's the argument. In verse 15 and verse 17 are married. If you love God, you're going to love the things of God. You're going to love what God loves. You're going to love what God likes, what God's affections, what God desires, what God wills, which is contained in God's Word. If you love the world and its desires, you're going to perish. If you love God and His desires, you're going to live forever. And so don't love the world. The opposite of that is love what's of God. Love what God loves. Love what God wills, which is defined and contained in God's Word. Love God's commandments. 1 John 5, 1-4, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Sin by definition, John says in 1 John 3, 4, is lawlessness. Transgression, God, it's a a lawless attitude in spirit that hates and rejects and resists the Word of God, that's been replaced through the new birth. The seed of God's Word and the Gospel that caused us to be born again remains in us, abides in us, lives in us, and so that we can't be content to practice and continue and walk in sin. Our desires have changed. Our affections have changed. For those who have God's seed and the Gospel living in them, defiance has been replaced with compliance. Subversion has been replaced with submission. Submission. Hate for God's Word and laws has been replaced with love for God's laws. The attitude that God's commandments are inconvenient and killjoys and oppressive have been replaced with the attitude that they are the keys to life, light, and light that results in eternal and lasting joy and satisfaction. So John's been given us the keys, the criteria by which we can know that we've been born of God. And he says over and over, you've been born of God, you've been begotten of God, you believe and you love God. And all that that implies, all that that entails. And how do we know that? How do we know that we're believing and loving God? He reverses the order now. Let's read this again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father does what? Loves whoever's been born of Him. You know you love God by loving those who have been born of God. By this we know that we love the children of God. How do we know that we love those who have been born of God? When we love God, you see the (laughs) you see the problem here. Reading this and meditating upon this, how do I know I love God so that I know I have eternal life and I can have assurance and confidence that I have been born of God? I know I love God because I love people. How do I know I love people because I love God? It's somewhat circular. And there's not a lot of assurance in that when you're trying to nail that down at first and you read that and you can't figure out, do I love God and do I love people? (laughs) What's the proof that you do the other? It's circular. How do we nail this down? I think there's a clue and clarification given in the very next verse. And this was something I, I thought was really helpful and really important nuance and distinction for today as much as it's ever been. For this is the love of God. So what does it mean to love God? This is the love of God. That is the reason we keep His commandments and... His commandments are not burdensome. According to John, loving God means keeping His commandments. We've talked a lot about that and not considering them burdensome, not considering them grievous. And so the test is, the question is, do the commandments of God regulate your relationships? And do you consider keeping the commandments of God that regulate those relationships burdensome, grievous, a killjoy, inconvenient? Here's the test. Do you define and extend love the way God does? The way God's defined it in His Word, the way God has extended it to us, according to the standard of God or the standards of society and the standards of self and the standards of the world. That's the test. And the only way to know is to measure our response, our actions, our love by the Word of God. will give you some examples of this. Homosexuality. Someone who's struggling with, with or homosexuality or any sin. Not singling out any, any sin. How do you love them? You know, preaching the truth and love and serving people and giving... There's a way we go about it, but how do you love them? The world has, and society has a definition of love and how to love people and overlook everything and not try to actually help them and let them drive off a cliff. That's very different from the way God defines what it means to love somebody and how God loved us and intervened on our behalf. What's it mean to love somebody struggling with some form of sin? What's it mean to church discipline, which isn't popular either today? Don't judge and all that. When somebody needs to be disciplined and correct like we see at Corinth or various places in the New Testament. What's it mean to love that person? There's a way that society would say you love them. There's a way that God loves them and says to love them. What about disciplining your own children? The world would say, don't spank them, don't hurt their self-esteem, be their best friend, don't tell them no, and the Bible would say something entirely different, what it means to love your children and help your children. Situational ethics, which says that right and wrong depend upon the situation. Sometimes the right thing to do is the wrong thing. But to do yeah. something that's bad because it'll give, bring about the greatest amount of good. What does it mean to love people? And I think, again, this is a very critical distinction and point John makes here. As much today as ever, loving people means loving them according to the standard of God, in God's love and what's defined by God and His Word, not what's defined by society. You can love people for various reasons, not related to religion, This love, Christian love, agape love, is different, and it has a higher motivation. According to John, you can't love God, you can't love man, without loving God's commandments, without applying God's commandments. Love for God and love for the brethren are inseparable duties, and each is a test of the other. It's not circular. (laughs) It makes perfect sense. You love God by loving other people. We talked about that. That's how you serve God. That's how you express love for God, by serving those who are visible. And you love others by loving them according to God's commandments, by loving God's commandments, applying God's commandments, by loving them as defined by God and His Word. John also says the test here is that you don't consider those commandments burdensome or grievous. We don't just submit, but we do it with joy. We do it. We give willingly and cheerfully because we want to. Our desires have changed. We love what God loves. So how and why aren't these commandments burdensome? Why aren't they inconvenient? Why aren't they a killjoy? Why aren't they grievous? Faith. Verse 4, because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith sees through the temporary to the eternal, sees through the lies and temptation and deception that these commandments are killjoys and that they're burdensome. Faith sees that. The world tempts us to believe that the commandments of God are burdensome, are grievous, we see that in the garden. God's holding you back. God's a killjoy. God's an oppressive tyrant keeping you from all these wonderful things and not as rewarding and satisfying as disobeying them. It's a burden to deny and deprive yourself sexually and morally and monetarily and recreationally at cost. And you'll begin to view God's commandments as a burden, as grievous, as a killjoy, when you come to believe that those things cost you more than disobedience to God. That's when it becomes a burden. That's when it becomes grievous. But through faith and hope and love, we can overcome the world, and lies of the world, that these commandments are burdensome. We begin to see them not as burdens, but as blessings that lead to to eternal life and eternal joy and eternal peace with God and with others. God's commandments unmask and overcome Satan's lies and the lies of the world. Through the new birth, through faith, we have come to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and that everything else, all the things in the world, the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is expendable dung and rubbish by comparison because we trust His promises. We trust His love. And that overcomes the lies and the deceptions and the temptations and the lust and the desires of the world. And we've come to know and believe His yoke is easy and His burden is light. These commandments from a loving, benevolent Father are not weighty, they're not grievous, they're not burdensome. Love has lightened them. Love has made them easily born. I'm reminded of the story of the nine-year-old who was carrying his five-year-old crippled brother, and he said, think he made a song out of this, he's not heavy, he's my brother. We bear them with faith and with hope and with love. Faith and hope and love make them easily born. And so if you love what God loves, you're gonna keep his commandments, because what God loves is defined, what God wills and desires is defined in his word. Faith, hope, and love obey. Somebody says, we're about 1 John 5, one? everyone who believes that Jesus the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. All you got to do is believe. We've already seen throughout this book, John defines belief and confession entirely different in the way denominational Christianity seems to define it. It's more than just mental accent and mental acknowledgement, but it's seen in our actions. It's seen in our walk and our lifestyle and our practice and what we do continuously. It's more than that what it means to believe, all that that entails, all that implies, what it means to believe and confess Christ. And the other important point to remember, again, is the context of this book. If you lose sight of the context of this letter, you're going to miss the point. And you're going to make something the point that's not the point. Who's John writing to? Christians. Who are dealing with Gnostics. He's not writing to alien sinners on how to become a Christian, (laughs) He's writing to people who are already Christians on how to stay Christians and how to distinguish and differentiate between people who are real Christians and who aren't Christians. And he's dealing with the Gnostics, Greek word gnosis, who are claiming a superior knowledge, claiming that the flesh is evil, that who you are in the flesh has no bearing on who you are spiritually, that God could not assume human form because the flesh is evil. They deny Jesus is Christ. They deny Christ as Jesus. That's who he's addressing. That's what he's addressing. And he's telling them, you want to know who the real Christians are? Those who continue to believe and confess Christ, that Jesus is Christ. Gnostics would not do that. And to continue to confess that in your actual actions and what you do, how you live, how you love, that's the context. Belief and everything that comes with it was the test to determine who was a child of God, and it sifted out the heretics that John was writing about. So, whosoever believeth and whosoever loveth. These clauses in the same verse talking about the same individual. Same idea in 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Same idea, same concept. And here's the logic. Here's the point he's making. To believe Jesus is Christ is evidence that you've been begotten of God. To continue to believe that. To continue to confess that. To be begotten of God involves and requires loving God. And loving God requires and involves loving God's children. Those who love God's children have been born of God or begotten of God. Therefore, the conclusion is to believe Jesus Christ requires loving God's children, which proves the reality of the new birth. 1 John 5, 2, what does love do? What does faith do? Whoever believes, everyone who believes, everyone who loves does what? Obeys. Faith, hope, and love do what? They obey. They submit. I'm thinking of another verse in, in 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3, about this hope that we have of seeing him as he is and becoming like Christ. And everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself as he is pure. Hope obeys. Faith, hope, and love do what? They obey. They keep his commandments. That's the present active t- <laughs> <present laughs> active tense. The concept is keep on keeping on. The test is you keep on keeping his commandments and you don't view them as burdensome anymore. They're not, no matter the, the difficulties, the hardships, the privations that come with them, <coughs> you're focused on eternal victory. Notice the key word here in this verse the faith that looks to the victory, the conquering power of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love enables men to resist temptation, to resist the entanglements in the world, to reject the false doctrine. John's writing about I'm, I'm reminded of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, of whom the world wasn't worthy. These all died in faith, of whom the world wasn't worthy. Moses, who chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, because he was looking to the reward. Faith looks to the victory. Faith looks to the reward. They sought a better country. They sought a heavenly country whose builder and maker is God. That's what faith does, and that's how faith overcomes the lies that the commandments of God are burdensome, because we're looking past that to the reward, to the promise. Our faith and our love for God overcomes disobedience and makes His commandments not a burden, a blessing. Reminded of uh, Genesis 29, verse 20, a great verse for an anniversary card. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, And they seemed to him as but a few days because of the love that he had for her. That's the concept. Verse 4, so verse 3 says, Love overcomes, viewing the commandments as burdensome. Verse 4, faith overcomes the world. So we overcome faith and love. They're inseparable. Faith loves God by obeying and keeping His commandments, demonstrating your faith. Your faithfulness, demonstrating your trust. Love obeys the God it trusts. Love obeys the God it loves. Harmonizes perfectly with James, James 2, with Paul. And in 1 John 3:16, John writes, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The new birth connects God's love for us and our love for others. The new birth connects God's love for us and our love for others. God's nature is love. So when we are born of God, we share in that nature. We join that nature in the manifestation, the greatest manifestation of love and of God's love was the incarnation and the crucifixion of God's Son to bring us life, light, and love. That's the gospel. He says this twice in verse 9 and 10. This is love. This is the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Sent His Son so we could live. Sent His Son to die so we could live. Sent His Son to propitiate our sin. He laid down His life for us. same word we see in John 10 when Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep, Not that we love God in verse 10 is emphasizing and making it clear. It's not that we merited or deserted or provoked God to love us. Rather, God commends His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His abundant mercy, God has saved us by the washing of regeneration through the new birth, through baptism. And so in summarizing, verse 8, God is love. Verse 9, the love with which God possesses has been manifested, has been revealed, incarnated in the gift of a Son. And this love was not the result of some act on our part, but was antecedent, preceded the love that we now have for God. And if you want to experience and enjoy that love, it's available to you in Christ through the new birth. Not anything you do, having faith in the operation of God, washing you in His blood, resurrecting you to walk in newness of life with new loves, new desires, new affections. If you need to make that decision, the Lord offers that invites you to do that. Maybe you're here and you've done that. Maybe as a Christian, you're struggling with doubt and insecurity and assurance. Maybe that's due in part because you don't have love in your life. Proof is life, light, and love. And maybe you're not the loving person that you know you need to be. Maybe you need to be forgiving, maybe you need to let go of something, maybe you need help loving God and loving others with the standard of God by keeping God's commandments, letting God's Word regulate those relationships. If you want to enjoy and experience the love of God and God's love perfected in you in the way that you love other people, the Lord offers you this invitation and invites you, reminds you, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you need to respond to that invitation, the Lord invites you to come as we stand and sing.